0: volume 2 chapter 12 part 2 of evelyn or a heart unmasked a novel by anna cora mollett this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by kelly taylor chapter 12 part 2 that morning for the first time in my life i reflected over my whole past existence my follies vices and yes there were crimes too they all stared at me like so many frightful spectres in the face when i thought of colonel damereau i remembered or rather for the first time realized the insidious art by which from the days of our acquaintance he had assailed my honour my eyes were opened the more deeply i thought upon his character the more i loathed and despised it until i started up exclaiming how could i have ever loved him sensual selfish cold-blooded sacrificing the honour of one he loves her temporal and eternal happiness for his own transient gratification oh how could i have ever loved him from that moment my passion was turned to scorn and indignation not to hatred, for I despised him too thoroughly to hate. I dreaded his return. Never, never more could I endure to meet the grasp of his perfidious hand. But what was to become of me? Oh, if I could have only once more found myself at home! How much better a wife, how much worthier a mother I could have been! But that was impossible. My feet must never cross that threshold more." I had forfeited for ever the sacred titles of wife and mother. I wonder that I retained my reason, because I became certain of these terrible but unalterable truths. Alas, I was not so happy as to grow mad. Upon one step I instantly resolved, and that was to forsake Colonel Damereau and abandon my present sinful course of life. But whither should I fly? How should I support myself? these questions i could not answer but my determination remained unshaken i summoned the maid who daily attended upon me she was a young pale-looking girl and her face plainly betokened that she had known sorrow i thought that she would sympathize with my grief and i was not mistaken i gave her a slight sketch of my history at which she showed no surprise and entreated her to bestow upon me a suit of her own clothes "'that I may pass through the streets unknown. "'I cannot purchase them from you,' said I, "'for I am destitute of means.' "'As I spoke, my eyes fell upon the jewelled rings "'glittering upon my hand. "'I always wore those rings, "'and when I left home I did not remember "'that they were upon my fingers. "'I drew off a costly diamond ring "'and begged her to accept it. "'She quietly refused, "'and answered that she would supply me "'with clothes without recompense.' i hastily attired myself in a suit of her coarse garments and that i might be more perfectly disguised cut my hair close to my head and wore one of her caps all of your beautiful hair you cut it off yourself exclaimed ellen involuntarily why not dear ellen i hated the very sight of it it had too often been admired for my own peace so much did i dread colonel damereau's return that as soon as i was dressed i ran from the house almost without thanking my kind assistant once in the street i could not forbear directing my steps to union park i was soon within a few paces of my former home but think of my grief my horror and despair when i beheld dr r's gig standing in front of the house i was certain that it was lilla whom he came to attend and as certain that I should never more behold the babe I had so cruelly forsaken, never while its living lips could return the pressure of mine. I was fearful of being recognized. I dared not linger on the spot where centered all my hopes, if such a lost creature as I am could entertain hopes. I turned away, and entered the first jewellers' shop I could find. Unless I sold the rings upon my fingers I could not obtain shelter or substance. I drew off ring after ring, and holding them towards the man, asked in a faltering tone at what price he would purchase them. The jeweller examined the rings, looked at me suspiciously, and demanded where I had procured them. I could not reply. He repeated the question, and at the same time laying them upon the counter. I seized them up and darted from the shop. I dared not make another attempt to sell the jewels, yet it was absolutely necessary that I should dispose of them. I had heard Richard speak of pawnbrokers' shops, and I knew that their sign was generally three golden balls. I was in the bowery, and walked straight on, looked about me at every step. At last I beheld the wished-for sign, and, with my veil closely gathered over my face, entered a small dark shop. A Jewish-featured old man was standing behind the counter. I showed him the rings. "'but my words must have been inarticulate. "'How much do you want to raise?' he inquired. "'Whatever you will give,' was my whispered answer. "'Well, I should think fifty dollars was a pretty fair loan upon them,' he replied. "'I knew that the diamond guard alone had cost twice that sum, "'but I had not the strength to argue with the man. "'I nodded my head in token that I was satisfied, "'and he desired me to write my name in a book.' which was lying open on his desk. I took the pen, uncertain what name to give, and after deliberation wrote, I do not remember what. He placed the money and a certificate in my hand, and I was again in the street in search of lodgings. I wandered on until my limbs were tired, but I had not settled in my mind upon any mode of procuring the shelter so much needed. It had commenced to rain, and I was perfectly unprotected, but I needed nothing external. Hardly knowing why, I turned down Spring Street, and before I had proceeded many steps the word boarding, engraved in large letters upon a brass doorplate, attracted my attention. I mounted the steps, and with trembling hands pulled the bell. The ring was answered by the mistress of the house herself. I explained to her my wishes, but she looked at me in a scats and rudely said that they took none but respectable persons, and that she did not know whether or not she had accommodations for me. I was too miserable, too ill, to feel offended at her remark. I do not know what questions I answered, but after asking a number of questions she introduced me into a room which was to be my chamber. If you could have seen it, Ellen— if you could have seen the dark, uncleanly miserable hole partitioned off from a close garret into which she ushered me! What a contrast to the splendid abode from which I had fled! Yet so humbled had I become, through the consciousness of my crime, that I felt as if even this mean refuge was a better one than the guilty outcast deserved. My life in this new dwelling was indeed a wretched one, yet i had not courage to seek other lodgings i was content to wait entirely upon myself to take care of my own room to supply my own wants but besides this i was forced to join the family a coarse vulgar set of persons at table i begged to be excused from the latter penalty for i was ill in mind and body the few mouthfuls that passed my lips i longed to swallow in solitude but the mistress of the house would not consent to my wishes she had no servants she said to wait upon folks who gave themselves airs and i might do as others did or go without eating i yielded but often partook of only one meal a day did you not suffer from want of clothes inquired ellen fortunately i discovered that one of the rooms in the second story was rented out to a third-rate dressmaker I took courage to pay a visit to this woman, and gave her money to buy me a couple of black dresses, for I felt as though I ought to wear none of brighter hue. She did so, and afterwards made them for me, badly enough to be sure, but that mattered little. Through the kindness of this humble and hard-working woman I procured other clothes of which I was much in need. I dared not venture into the street during the day for fear of meeting some of my former friends colonel Damaro, above all others i dreaded to encounter for i could not rely upon my own self-possession in preserving my disguise when it was dark i stole from the house but always to wander in the same direction there was but one spot which my thoughts haunted by day and where i lingered sometimes for hours together it was by your door I watched the lights, which shone from different windows half the night. I longed to hear the sound of some of your voices. I thought that I should be almost happy again if I but once heard Lilla shout, as she so often did, when I sprang about with her in my arms. But the doctor's gig was always at the door, and long and eagerly as I listened I never caught the sound of a familiar tone. Were you not afraid to wander about alone at night? asked ellen in tones of sorrowful surprise i was dead to all such fear there was for me but only one pleasure left in the world and that was indeed a melancholy one it was to sit upon the doorstep of the house in which i had once ruled as mistress and to listen to the lightest sounds which issued from within i was often insulted and sometimes even accosted by the watchman but i heeded not this I was near those most dear, although they knew it not, and I would suffer any indignity rather than be deprived of that sole remaining joy. One night the desire to behold my forsaken child grew so strong upon me that I could no longer restrain myself. I knew that she slept with mother in the basement chamber, and after crouching a long time by the windows to catch even the sound of her breath, I seized hold of the shutters to tear them open— "'The noise I made brought me to myself "'and startled those within the chamber, "'for soon after somebody opened the door leading to the street "'and I was obliged to escape. "'Lilla died. "'There was none to tell me that her pure spirit had departed, "'yet I knew that she was dead. "'For once I ventured forth in the daytime. "'I sought my usual haunt. "'The street door was open.' AND MANY OF THE NEIGHBORS WERE ISSUING FROM THE MANSION OF SORROW. SOME OF THEM WEPT, BUT MY EYES WERE DRY. THE RELIEF OF TEARS WAS DENIED ME. DESPAIR GAVE ME COURAGE, AND I ONCE MORE PASSED THROUGH THAT LONG ENTRY AND ENTERED THAT WELL-KNOWN ROOM. I COULD NOT TELL WHO WAS PRESENT. I SAW NOTHING BUT LILLA IN HER COFFIN evelyn paused again and pressed her hand on her brow at another time tell us the rest some other time said ellen with emotion no hear me now i must make the effort i have but little more to say a long period after that most dreadful day was a blank to me i believe that i was seized with some violent fever and the good dressmaker took care of me but i have no distinct recollection of what passed when i recovered i was again forced to join the family at table there was one part of my history to which i cannot bear to even allude the person who sat next to me at meals was a young man probably of dissolute habits and do not make me tell you you cannot imagine what i would say he paid his addresses to you asked i "'not because I thought that I had divined rightly, "'but because I shrank from making any other suggestion. "'Worse, worse, much worse. "'I was forced to leave the house "'for fear of being traced by this infamous man. "'I made my escape in such haste "'that I could only gather up a small bundle of clothes "'to carry with me. "'I had grown so feeble that I could not have walked with a tolerably large one. For a couple of hours or more I walked about the street not knowing whither to seek shelter. Suddenly I thought of Netta's mother. I knew in what street she lived, and I remembered her number. With her, at least, I should find protection. She had never seen me, and if I could only bribe Netta to secrecy, my retreat might remain undiscovered but even after I was in with sight of Nancy's shop, the fear of meeting Ellen, or you, Miss Catherine, or of Netta's betraying me, for a long time deterred me from entering. At last, wearied to death, and almost unable to support myself, I staggered into the shop. If Nancy herself had not caught me by the arm, I should have fallen, yet I retained sufficient possession of my to look anxiously around for Netta. It was a relief to discover that she was not present in a very confused manner i told nancy what i wanted and begged that she would hire me a room offering to pay her a higher price than she usually demanded if she would supply my wants herself and not permit any other person to come near me she consented and to my great joy accidentally informed me that netta was living with you this was the first thrill of pleasure i had felt Oh for how long and you ellen your charity had provided this home for me i was taken ill i feared yet longed to die my sins had been too great to be expiated even by the horrible sufferings which i had undergone i do not know how long i had laid in this miserable little chamber for i never left my bed and days and nights passed on without my noticing them one day I heard your voices in the adjoining room. Those love sounds seemed to restore me at once to health and strength. I started up in the bed. My first impulse was to fly to you. The next moment I remembered my degradation. I could never more be claimed as wife, daughter, sister, friend. I fell back in an agony of grief and remorse. For the first time since my sweet Lilla's death, I wept. Nancy entered the room and begged that I would see you. More terrified than ever, I obstinately refused. Then I heard Ellen's dear voice. She was persisting in seeing me. I tremblingly hid myself beneath the bedclothes, and you entered my chamber. You know all that happened, know all, but my feelings, and those no language could paint. I passed a most wretched night after you left me to remain here was impossible the risk of your return was too great i must again wander forth a homeless outcast i rose before daybreak sustained by my earnest desire to escape i dressed myself and once more made a bundle of the clothes i could find i examined my purse nancy had been regularly paid i had but six shillings left i put those upon the washstand they were her due and i had parted with my last cent. i cautiously opened my chamber door nobody was to be seen with noiseless steps i passed through the shop fortunately the street door was unbarred for i should not have had the strength to draw the bolt billy had probably passed out before me in another moment i was in the street again the morning air revived yet chilled me my thin shawl was but a slight protection against the winter wind I walked but a few blocks, when my strength began to fail. I found myself standing beside the steps of a market. Near the entrance sat an old woman selling vegetables. Several bushel baskets of potatoes stood in a half-circle on one side of her. I tottered towards the woman, for her countenance was not repulsive. I am wearied to death. Will you let me rest here? was all I could say. She made some answer, which I could not hear, but I took for assent and sank down upon a low footstool that stood amongst the baskets they screened me from the gaze of the passers-by and the good woman filled a mug with water and handed it to me i could not take it for my hands were too tremulous but leaning forward i drank and was refreshed she looked at me and shaking her head muttered something to which i did not listen i must have remained some hours in the same position yet not wholly unconscious, for I remember that the filth and offensive odours in the market sickened me, and the noise almost crazed my head. In walking I had dropped my bundle, and I now for the first time missed it. All at once I remembered that I had not a farthing in the world, and that the worn and ragged garments which then enveloped my half-frozen limbs were the only ones I possessed suddenly a strange vision rose before me i seemed to be looking in a mirror and saw myself arrayed in my bridal robes with the jewels sparkling in my hair and on my arms and bosoms and the costly veil floating about my richly clad limbs was it not strange that on that very marriage day i had beheld myself as i was now clothed in rags and misery and want depicted on my faded and altered face ah why had i not thought of that warning vision before and shunned the acts which could make it real the old woman took hold of my arm and looking up i saw several other women crowded around me and curiously peering into my face they addressed me in rude tones one after another But i made no answer to their questions i only said i am rested i will go home now home i had no home i had brought disgrace and misery to the home which i might have gladdened i should never more have a home save that which the coffin offers even to the most abject the woman seemed half inclined to detain me but i rose up and hurried away As I left the market, I heard one of them exclaim, Poor thing! I hope she hasn't brought it on herself. But I shouldn't wonder if she didn't deserve much pity from honest folks. Even these low market-women despised me. Humble and mean as was their lot, they possessed the one inestimable jewel which placed them above me in the eyes of God, as of man. Which way I turned how far i tottered on or how i came here i cannot say i recollect that soon after i left the market i saw somebody who resembled nancy coming towards me i remember nothing more when consciousness returned again you beloved ellen and you dear miss catherine were watching by my side but you did not then know my guilt "'Perhaps you will never sit here again. "'But my heart is lighter now "'that I have told you all.' "'Alas, Evelyn did not remember "'that she had transferred the weight of her own heart to ours. "'You do not speak, Ellen, dear Miss Catherine,' she continued. "'You do not say that you will not cast me off. "'I do not deserve your pardon.' I never again can possess your esteem you must despise me but not more than i do myself i cannot be more guilty and more degraded in your eyes than i am in my own i looked at ellen i longed to hear her speak and console this true and suffering penitent but the quivering lips of the unhappy girl could frame no words evelyn said i you are as dear to me and i think to ellen also as you ever were you have sinned and suffered when we ourselves are without sin then we will be worthy to judge you that cannot be and we leave it to god who sees all to decide whether your penitence be real Evelyn turned her large blue eyes full upon my face, and the look she gave me will ever be garnered up among the most precious things in my memory. "'And you, sister, will you love me still?' asked Evelyn. "'I never can help loving you,' was Ellen's tender, but not calmly uttered reply. Evelyn was evidently much exhausted, and I insisted that she should compose herself to sleep. She consented, but unwillingly. Ellen and I sat by the bed, perfectly quiet, until Evelyn's deep but regular breathing proclaimed that she slept. I was the first to speak. She will recover, said I no glow of pleasure flushed ellen's cheek yes she answered but i finished her sentence but she cannot be to us what she has been is that what you would say ellen and you speak truly for she can be much more and we can be far more to her it will be our part to console to advise her to make her penitence real and lasting "'and to point out the mode by which she may render it expiatory. "'We may be her only friends, Ellen, "'for society will have placed its ban upon her. "'Those who have sinned in secret, "'yet retained their proud station in the world, "'will be the first, with unabashed fronts, "'to fling the stone at our misguided Evelyn. "'But we must sustain her. "'We must not leave her friendless.' oh miss catherine there is nothing under the face of heaven which i love so dearly as evelyn yet i cannot conceive i cannot excuse to myself her infatuation and her error was there ever a tale so horrible as the one she has just related to us and how could she have left her child how could she have forsaken us Was it possible that she could forget our terror and grief at her strange disappearance? All thoughts were engrossed in one, dear Ellen, and—but do not think that I intend to palliate her fault. I only repeat that it is not for us to judge her. Ellen said no more at that moment. After a pause of some duration, she asked, Must we tell Walter, and father, and mother? Must they not know that Evelyn has been found? I hardly know what to reply, Ellen, but I think that for present we should keep our secret. Her imminent peril has passed, but Evelyn has by no means recovered. When she is once more restored to health, it will be time enough to decide. And Amy, poor "'Amy, she certainly must be told.' "'You are right, Ellen. "'It will be a dreadful blow to her, yet she must know the truth.' "'And will you tell her?' "'I could not bear to see her misery.' "'Perhaps you are right. "'If you remembered that she would be spared from greater misery, "'I dread the interview, but—' THE ENTRANCE OF DR. WESTLEY PREVENTED MY CONCLUDING THE SENTENCE. WE INFORMED HIM THAT HIS PATIENT HAD awakened, AS HE PREDICTED, IN HER SENSES, AND THAT SHE HAD CONVERSED WITH US FOR A COUPLE OF HOURS. THAT WAS WRONG, VERY WRONG, AND MOST HAZARDOUS, replied HE. SHE MUST BE PERMITTED TO SPEAK AS LITTLE AS POSSIBLE. HER RECOVERY DEPENDS UPON HER PERFECT QUIETUDE, AND SHE MUST BE KEPT FREE FROM ALL EXCITEMENT he gently pressed his finger upon her pulse and said in a whisper the fever has returned but in no great violence if she has a relapse we can entertain but little hope for her life these words seemed to arouse alarm in ellen all her former love and anxiety for her sister were reawakened she seized the doctor's arms and said in an agitated tone tell us what to do We will follow, implicitly follow, your orders, doctor. Only save her. She must not die. Save her, if it is possible. Dr. Wesley looked at Ellen in surprise, and the expression of his face seemed to ask, How is it that she is so dear to you? But he only answered, I will do my utmost. At present more depends upon herself, and on her nurses, than upon me. She must be kept calm, and perfect quiet preserved about her. These are my only directions. If they are followed, nature will probably do the rest, for my patient is evidently very young, and her constitution not seriously impaired. The doctor left us, and after his departure we did not even dare to converse in whispers for fear of breaking Evelyn's rest. At last she turned, and in a few moments more— slowly opened her eyes her first words were is it true then you have pardoned me oh if only i could see mother i would not permit her to say any more the doctor's orders were communicated and ellen joined me in entreating that she should obey them evelyn was now too debilitated to remonstrate and she laid back upon the pillow and again closed her eyes but not to sleep for every few moments she opened them and they were fixed with a loving expression upon our faces thus passed the greater portion of the day towards dark ellen at my urgent entreaty returned home when evelyn found that i was alone with her she made a second effort to speak but i charged her if she loved us to remain silent she again partook of nourishment that i had prepared and to satisfy her i was also obliged to eat when the evening was half spent she said you must not sit up by me i cannot sleep unless you are resting indeed i cannot pray go to bed to argue with her would have been useless i begged nancy to prepare a cot and place it by the side of evelyn's nancy did so and evelyn's face wore a happy smile as i laid down near her in the morning ellen came provided with her work and carrying a book in her hand she proposed reading aloud to her sister but this i would not permit for fear of agitating evelyn or rendering her mind too active when i arrived at home mrs willard had just finished breakfast i remembered evelyn's request to see her mother but felt a repugnance to mention the subject at that moment I have a duty towards Amy, too, to perform, but not today. I must rest, that I may gain strength. End of chapter 12, part 2